This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by Acid Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organisations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The acid test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? Acid test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organisations. Its unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open, probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. Acid Test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message. Simply taking part in acid tests makes employees feel heard, understood and valued. Visit abcom.co.uk forward slash acid test to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom, abcom.co.uk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, my guest today is Advita Patel. Now, there are several reasons why I have long wanted Advita to be in my hot seat, so to speak. First, there's the question of what drove her decision to leave the corporate world after more than 15 years to establish her own consultancy, Poms Rebel and her specific area of focus, that perennial challenge of identifying measurable outcomes for internal comms. And then there's A Leader Like Me, which Advita co-founded in 2020 with Priya Bates. This global initiative helps underrepresented minority groups progress further in their careers. In short, it gives the kind of help and inspiration that Advita and Priya wished they'd had early on in their careers. Plus, Advita is a qualified coach, a mentor, a regular public speaker, one of the trio of women that hosts the Calm Edged Rebel podcast and a board director for the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. And it's across all these roles and activities that she is helping the internal comms community become more aware of issues relating to diversity, belonging and inclusivity. Now, we often talk about the IC community being a particularly generous and supportive one. And I think that Advita is the very essence of this. So join me for a very wide ranging, very open and honest conversation with Advita Patel. So, Avita, thank you so much for appearing on the Internal Comms Podcast. I've wanted to have this conversation with you for a really long time, and we have finally made it happen. I know, and thank you so much, Katie. Honestly, it's a privilege to have this conversation with you today. So, in some ways, I feel like I know you, and which is weird because I don't think we've met that many times, but I've listened to you on podcasts, your own, and also on other people's and at events, and we've appeared together at events. But I genuinely probably don't know you really as well as I think I do. So, I thought we could start in a slightly strange place, but take you almost back to the beginning. And if I'm reading LinkedIn right, you actually studied at sixth form and at university 
the sort of sciences, you studied information technology at university. So that kind of prompted my first question, really, which is, why comms? <laughs> Do you know what? That is so interesting. So I studied sciences because it was expected of me to study sciences oh. when I was uh, growing up. You know, it was one of those South Asian family expectations in terms of, you know, if you don't do sciences and what kind of career career do you have? And my parents weren't like overly pressured about it, to be honest with you. When I was 15, I was given a choice to go to a pharmacy, a law firm or accountancy to do my work experience. And I chose pharmacy because Boots the Chemist had a makeup counter. Uh, and that's what enticed me to go and work there. So I ended up going into the sciences that way because I enjoyed at the time doing the pharmacy work. And I actually trained as a healthcare assistant as well in Boots. So I used to dispense the medication. So I studied A-level chemistry and biology and I did IT as well. And A-level chemistry, let me tell you, Katie, it's not GCSE chemistry. Oh, I bet. I <laughs> and bet. it became pretty clear in my A-levels that chemistry was not my forte. Biology was great, IT was great, chemistry was not my forte. So I couldn't study pharmacy, which is what I wanted to study at university. So I ended up going to my default, which was IT, because I did actually have ambitions. And, and, and I sound really old now, but IT was like internet and the web was becoming more accessible to everybody at the time. So I went to university and studied infotech. I remember being one of only two women in a class of 78 people so there's 80 within total and two of us were women and the rest were all men and it was a really quite you know intimidating situation to be in at the time you know 18 years old you're walking into this room so I fell in love with technology I fell in love with information technology I learned how to code so I used to do things like C++ and JavaScript and then HTML and I specialized in my final final year in coding in HTML and website development and that's when websites were kind of growing at speed at that time. And I suppose if, if I really think back and reflect, that was my a little bit of a touch base into the world of communications and, and the things what internets and, and websites and all that could, could do to kind of communicate more effectively. But I didn't know this world existed, by the way, at, at that point. And then I ended up working in what I thought was an IT job. It wasn't. It was very much data inputting. Hated it. Hated every single second of it. I actually, uh, I was being uh, like bullied by my boss at that time. It was a terrible situation to be in at the age of 23. It was my first ever office job. You know, my parents didn't work in an office. So I never had that experience when they, you know, they were both business owners, entrepreneurs in their own right. So they never came home and spoke to me about office etiquette. They never spoke to me about CFOs and CEOs. And, you know, Mary said this at the photocopier and Jonathan did that in the kitchen. No, I never had that enough at all. So for me, entering, the, and obviously I did my work experience in a, in a retail store. So work, work, walking into an office environment was alien to me completely. And I really struggled with it. And especially because it was a job I didn't enjoy. So I quit. Uh, and it's the first time I've quit anything in my life, by the way. I've all, even as chemistry A-level was t- horrific, I still pursued it right till I did my qualifications. Uh, but it's the first time I quit. I then, like many, I ended up just going to work in um, an admin job at a university. And it was at that point I got uh, mentored by an amazing marketing manager called Catherine. And she actually took me under her wing and asked me to work with her one day a week in the marketing department. Um, And that's when she told me that I had a bit of a knack for marketing and comms. And that was the first time I kind of entered that world, I suppose. Right. And never looked back. I never looked back, no. And then that's when I ended up doing my master's in strategic marketing. And then just from that point, and entered the world of internal comms. Because the first job I had, uh, I thought I was applying for a marketing officer role. But once I started in role, it was actually internal communications. And that's when oh. I actually entered the world of internal comms. Because I recognized what I was doing was very much internal comms to colleagues, not marketing as I'd been taught at university and doing a master's. So I, I, it's when Twitter first came out and I touched base with Rachel Miller, who at the time was writing blogs about internal comms. As, if you, you know, and she was a pioneer and still is to, uh, to some extent in the internal comms world. So I remember connecting with Rachel as the first person of internal comms I'd connected with and, and then just started to build my community on Twitter. So when he said at the start of this podcast, 
I feel like I know you and, and the same with you, you know, because that's what uh, social media has enabled us to do, right? Get to know people without actually physically meeting them properly yes. in real life. So that's, you know, one of the benefits, I suppose, of having social in our lives right now. But yeah, so that's how it all kind of kicked off. I'm interested in the fact that there was a mentor at the heart of that sort of career change, because I think a lot of us probably could benefit from mentors at all stages of our career. What was it that a mentor particularly did for you? What what did you find so valuable about having a mentor? It was the first time in my very short career at that time that somebody actually listened to me and mm. actually asked me questions about me. Not because it was going to benefit the workplace, not because I had to deliver against my objectives or my PDR, but genuinely interested in the things that brought me joy. And I specifically remember Catherine asking me, so what is it that you enjoy about this? And she she listened and she made sure that I did tasks that would stretch me in terms of my development, but also gave me and brought me great joy. And I think that's what that, and at the time, again, I didn't know that what Catherine was doing was mentoring me. It's only when mm. my, I, my, one of my first jobs was in a mentoring and coaching scheme that I recognized the qualities of a, what a good mentor and a good coach can do for people's progression, which is why, again, I'm so passionate about coaching and mentoring and why I qualified and got my qualifications in coaching because I saw the benefits of being an effective coach and the, and what you can do to support others and that's exactly what Catherine did to me and she listened and that's all we want at the end of the day don't we we want people to, mm. to us and, and, and support us especially with that objective kind of third party stand back kind of perspective where you are not necessarily part of the politics and all that sort of thing so after many years of working in-house, in I have to say, again, looking at your bio, many different sectors, actually, you then decided to set up Comms Rebel. And I, I just wondered what prompted that decision when you reflect back on your career. Was it always working up to the point that you would launch on your own? Or did that decision actually creep up on you a little bit unexpectedly? A bit of both. I had this ambition to work for myself because my parents, like I said, were entrepreneurs and owned their own businesses. But I also saw the downside of owning your own business, you know, and I grew up with my parents working for themselves since the age of three years old until they retired. And I saw the peaks and troughs it brought of working for yourself. So it kind of put me off. And I remember when I was you know, 18, 19, thinking, oh, I just want to go into a corporate place and get a salary and not have to worry about you know, bringing in income and bringing in clients and marketing and all that kind of stuff that comes with working for yourself. But I got to a point in my career where I, I suppose, struggled to progress further and achieve my ambitions in the corporate space. And I live up in Manchester. So, you know, it's a, it's not as, you know, accessible as some of the jobs, you know, some of those sexy jobs, as people say, that are, that are in the city. Things have changed a lot since COVID, mm. by the way. But, you know, at the, in those days, it was very much you'd have to relocate to London if you wanted to kind of climb the dizzy heights of senior leadership in some places, and especially in internal communications. There were, there were very far and few between those senior director level kind of roles. And people stayed in Manchester, if those roles existed, people stayed in those roles for a long time because it was really difficult yes. to find another role. So I got to a point where I had this kind of, um, I don't know, I suppose those people who set their own business up may understand, but you felt like you had a greater purpose. And I, I just had this itch that just wasn't being kind of addressed in, in corporate life. And I thought, do you know what, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to get the opportunity to do this. So I, it was a very slow pace to comms rebel. And the frustration of the lack of progression in certain organisations that I worked in, in terms of respect for internal comms, was a driver as well. And I wanted to kind of support organisations who wanted to do things differently and understand when you do things differently, that's when change comes. You can't expect to keep doing the same things over and over again and expect change to happen. You know, there's a quote out there, isn't there, and I'm going to butcher it, but there is something about being foolish, doing the same thing over and over again. So that's why it comes, that's where the name comes from. You know, it is about revolutionising the way you communicate with your people so they feel included and can belong to the organisation, but using measurable outcomes to demonstrate your value. And when we spoke earlier, just sort of as prep for this conversation, you 
you said something which really caught my ears. You said, I'd worked out the kind of unique value that I wanted to add. You know, what was it that I was going to offer that was unique and different? And it really is around measurement. Am I right? Around measurement and objectives, about being very clear about what you want to achieve, but most importantly, measuring against that. Would that be a fair summary? 100%. Yeah, that was my big a big thing, you know, measurement. And I just think communicators and internal comms folk are just not very good at it at times. Not because the appetite isn't there. I think the appetite is there. But once they kind of start digging a bit deeper, it gets it, it feels a bit hard. And you, mm. you are faced with lots of barriers in your organisation as soon as you start putting measures in place. So as soon as you even say those words, what milestones do we want? What measures do we want? What outcomes are we looking for? Uh, and people get a bit antsy, right, Katie? Because people just want things off the list, the to-do list. They just want you to do it, just deliver it, and then move on to the next thing. Don't keep asking me questions about what outcomes I want. I just want it off my desk and I want you to deal with it. And you are faced with that kind of animosity at times from certain leaders who just want you to crack on. There's also a fear in some comms people that if they do measure, what if it demonstrates that it hasn't had the impact that you thought it had had? So a lot of people think, oh, <laughs> I'm not going to go near that because if it shows that I'm not adding any value in this business, then what does that mean for me and my team? So I'm not going to go near measurement and I'd rather just ignore the fact that it's not having any impact and we'll just carry on and keep churning out work and keep producing work because at least that shows that we're adding some value in, in the business. How do you get over that problem? Because I think you're absolutely you know, you've hit the nail on the head there, that fear that it's going to show us up and that it's going to prove that something we're doing isn't actually working. How do you get around that problem? It's going right back to the purpose of that message. Like, what are you trying to achieve? Why are you sending out that message? Why are you doing that campaign? And why are you investing that time to do it? And it's right going back to the purpose and, and being really clear on what you expect people to do with that information. And once you understand that and you get it, then you can put those measures in place. So if for health and safety, for example, you know, doing a health and safety campaign, are you expecting for, you know, people to have fewer accidents in the workplace? Are you expecting to lower absence rate when it comes to stress-related injuries? You know, those kind of things. You know, if you can track it, and I know there'll be people listening to this podcast today going, well, we can't claim for all of that, you know, it's, there's lots of different things that have been thrown into that bucket. I know, I get it, but you can take a slice of that. You can say, Absolutely. we've contributed to the fact that the absence figures have have, have declined over, over the last six months. And we know that because we've tracked it from the beginning of the campaign. We tracked it in the middle of the campaign and we're tracking it towards the end of the campaign. And we can see a correlation. Now, we may not mm. be able to say 100% internal comms had the impact, but we can definitely say we contributed to that impact because if we hadn't have done the campaign and we hadn't segmented our messages the way we did, then we wouldn't have seen the impact that we've had. And that's what I mean when we, and that's baby steps, right? And eventually, hopefully, you build up enough confidence to put proper measures in place. So you've got your dashboard and you can go to along to those board meetings and senior management meetings and show them the dashboard and go, because of internal comms and because of the work we've done, this is what we are demonstrating to you. But it does take time to get to that stage. You know, you've got to start off slowly. You've got to understand data and you've got to understand the why. Once you understand the why and the purpose behind it and also the organisation and what they're trying to do with their objectives, then you can kind of move into that measurement uh, dashboard phase. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I've often wondered, and I've asked many of my guests, what is the hiccup? What's the obstacle or barrier to measurement? And because we kind of know what we should be doing in theory, but it never seemed or rarely seems to work so perfectly in real life. Part of the reason I wonder whether sometimes, certainly when I speak to clients and I say, well, let's start with your business strategy. And they just look at me and say, don't ask me about that. You know, we're waiting for it. Or the last time we had a five-year update was 10 years ago, or it's just about to change. That might be part of the problem that our businesses are moving so fast. We don't always feel we've got a real handle on the business strategy. Would that be fair? Yeah, 100% fair. And, and I do think we are kind of, our, our hands are tied 
on the business corporate strategy. You know, if, if it's not clear, you don't have access to it, don't have visibility to it, then it is hard to kind of put the measures in place and understand what you're tracking, what you're not tracking. So you do end up being finger in the air. You know, it literally is a bit like that for many people, right? It's like, oh, what are we doing today? And I know a lot of internal comms folks and the people that you've also interviewed in the past have said they enjoy the variety of the role because you don't know from one day to the next what you're going to get involved in. And that's true. You don't, because if you don't have a, a strategy that you can, you know, align with because you're caught, you know, like you just said, because I haven't done one in the last 10 years, then it is hard. But it is about asking, you know, so you may not have a strategy and that's absolutely fine, but it's about asking your leader who's asking you to communicate certain messages. What outcome are you expecting to see from this message that you want me to communicate out to the, to the population? What behaviours are you expecting to see change by me writing this copy or doing this campaign or putting this note on the internet is it awareness is it knowledge is it desire is it about people clicking certain buttons when they're doing certain processes you tell me what behaviors do you want to see changing and then we can track whether people are following through with those instructions but if you don't know why you're sending out a campaign then we may need to have a conversation about what you want to gain from me spending time on it and you spending time on it because we want to bring the best value to the business And of course, the beautiful thing about that approach is having that conversation up front about about outcomes, about why are we doing this? What are you hoping to have as an impact on behavior, process, whatever it is, then enables us to potentially think differently about what we're going to do in terms of the actual communication, because then we can think to ourselves, ah, this is looking a bit like behavioral change. So I can't put up a couple of posters, you know, um, there's something else we're going to need to do. So it has that wonderful kind of, it gives you that insight into the type of work then you've got to go forth and do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it does. It it kick-boosts your creativity and that's what you want. Otherwise, you just kind of, you could just send out you know, 30 blogs in a week, right, doing the same thing. But understanding exactly what it is that you're trying to get colleagues and stakeholders in the business to do can really help drive that creativity in you as well and give you that headspace and reflection time to be purposeful with everything that you do and approach challenges and problems and issues with intention. And I just think we don't do enough of that. We can be very, you know, we're guilty of our own success at times and we can be very much tick box and it's off our list. Let's just book on to the next thing. Um, Mm. And asking those why questions and asking leaders in a very collaborative way. And this is why I enjoy coaching, right? And why I decided to get my coaching qualification and understand more about coaching wasn't to become a coach, which, you know, I have transitioned into in my own business. But prior to that, I wanted to coach leaders in the business to get to where I needed them to get to because leaders need a certain way of communication, right? Nobody likes to be told what to do. You just don't. And especially as you get more senior, they want to have a collaborative conversation with you and you've got to ask the right questions from them so you get the answers that you need. And sometimes you need to ask the coaching questions to get them to understand what you're trying to get them to do. There's lots of quotes and I'm going to I'm now going to butcher one as well. But it's something like judge the quality of a person by the questions he asks rather than his answers. Um, But yeah, yeah. Quality questions. I'm I'm a big, big, big favor of them. So you're now quite a few months into comms rebel you so when was it when was it established in the middle of the pandemic or just before just before six weeks before so middle of january i wow. uh, launched comms rebel yeah great year great year to launch a new business <laughs> very brave thing to do so what are your reflections after over 12 months now you've got the you've over your first year's anniversary what are your reflections has it been as as you expected or have you had a few surprises along the way oh goodness me no it's been very different to what I expected and it just demonstrates no matter how much research you do in becoming your own consultant and setting up your own business it's never what you expected it to be so I did you know I followed all the classics do your business plan have your three-year strategy in place? What are your kind of unique selling proposition? Nobody expected a global pandemic. I, least of all me, you know, one thing I learned is resilience is key (laughs) when you have your own business. You know, you're going to have nerves of steel um, (laughs) when when you're doing these kind of things, because it's so easy to kind of just be like, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to go back in house. Like, I'm just going to go back in house and forget I even had this silly idea of setting my own business up. But 
the year of the co- year of COVID and year of the pandemic has definitely taught me how to be more resilient. And I, I'm pretty resilient. You know, I've, I've grown up in a very resilient household as well, but there were shaky moments. So that's one lesson that I definitely learned. And also that our community, the Intelacoms community, and I knew this anyway, because I've been part of this community for a long time, but they are exceptional. There are people out there who will support you to the end of the earth to give you encouragement and applause and champion you. And when you're feeling a bit low, you know there's somebody out there who can give you that high five when you need it the most. And that's what I love about our internal comms kind of community because there's always people there to support you and lean into. And there's different communities out there that you can touch base with when you're feeling a little bit, when you're struggling. You know, when I did go through a, you know, when March came round and my warm leads, as I called them at the time, pulled out from, from working with them, I did kind of think to myself, oh my goodness, how am I going to make this a success? What am I going to do? These are the people that I was kind of relying on, the folks that I'd spent the last year warming up in in anticipation of my business launching. They've now just said I've got no budget because of COVID has taken priority for them. And I did go through, you know, four weeks of what you're doing, what you're doing, what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Who can I I go to? What should I do? Thankfully, because of the community and because of the support that I had around me, and you know, I'm very good friends with Jenny Field and Trudy Lewis. Both of them were great supporters of me, who'd both been in the consultancy world for for a number of years. Just told me to hold strong, and and just you know, ride the wave, and things will start you know picking up again. And it did. Thankfully, you know, it did after four or five weeks. And I'm very grateful to have those people around me because I think I could have easily easily just been like I'm going to go back to that job offer I had just before I set up because it happens doesn't it like it happens to me. yes when you make a decision that you're going to do something all of a sudden like buses oh we've got this opportunity for you we've got this and you're like oh no what shall I do <laughs> but I, I stayed steady and I went there but I was contemplating going back to one of those people and saying do you know that job offer you gave me just before Christmas <laughs> can I take yes. it yes I really need yes it. um but I didn't and I'm so grateful that I didn't I'm just curious because you seem always quite a very positive, upbeat, very articulate person. Is there anything that you do in your your daily life? Is there a daily routine or habit or ritual that keeps you feeling resilient? Because I think it's one of those things we kind of know we need to be, but how do we actually do it? Any any little hints or tips on resilience? It's so funny because... I never really see myself as, you know, if you ask my family, they'd be like, I'm right misery gut. You know, they'd be like, I'm miserable. Um, and I don't really see myself as that positive kind of person. But I suppose I always do try and look at what is the best outcome from this. And I have worked on my confidence and my imposter syndrome for, you know, for two and a half, three years, because I went through a really low point three years ago when I didn't feel like I belonged in the community and I really questioned my life choices at that time and I really had to pull myself out of that deep kind of place I'd got into and it wasn't like a diagnosed depression or anything like that but it was definitely a low point of my life and I'd really struggled with myself and understanding whether it's something I like to do so I spent a, a good number of months you know researching reading picking up tips and techniques on how can we believe in our own self-worth and make sure that we are still doing what brings us joy to an extent and you know I looked into motivational kind of you know so anybody who knows me and and who has spoken to me in the past will know that I'm a big fan of those kind of cheesy quotes that I share occasionally on my Insta page and Twitter because it's those kind of positive words that really get me through some days and I do believe in writing down your thoughts and doing that reflective journal and taking that time out of the day to kind of learn from what happened in that day and why you felt that day, you know, why you felt the way you felt. And I recently got into voice journaling and I don't know if anybody's Mm, ever done that. And the reason I voice journal more than anything is because I really hated the sound of my own voice when I used to listen back to things like podcasts and interviews. And when you hate the sound of your own voice, you can't listen back to see what you could do better next time, right? Because you just ignore it. So I really had to train my mind into being okay with my voice. So I started to voice journal. And it's been one of the best things I've done, you know, in, in, in ever. Because you can just, at the end of the day, you switch on my microphone on my phone and I just talk about my day to myself. And it sounds weird, but it doesn't matter because nobody's listening apart from you. And then I just kind of reflect on it at the end of the week about what did I learn? What could I do better? And why did I feel the way I felt? And then 
try and address that the week after and being a little bit more kind to myself. You know, and I say to anyone who's listening, talk to yourself like you would talk to your best friend because you you know, are someone that you love because we just, we're very unkind to ourselves at times and we'll say things like, oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, that's really silly of me. Oh, I know this might be a silly question. Oh, I know this isn't, you know, oh, forgive me. You know, we say things like that all the time. And I sometimes think, do you know what? If we just spoke to ourselves like we were talking to our best friend or someone that we loved, then we wouldn't feel so bad about ourselves at times. And that's how I try and stay on the positive side of things as much as I can. Trust me, I'm not 100% like this. Just speak to my sister. She will tell you. (laughs) You don't see this every day. There are moments where you just kind of, you know, hate life and go on to a rage. But I try as possible to be, be out of that that kind of lull as quickly as I can because life is just too short to to be miserable for a long period of time. I think this is going to lead very neatly into a leader like me and what drove you and uh, Priya Bates to establish it. Can you tell us a little bit about a leader like me? Who is your target audience and what's its kind of ultimate purpose or goal? So a a leader like me... um, started when I asked Priya to be my mentor and like I said to you before you know three years ago I went through that really like terrible phase of my career and I it took me a while to pull myself out of that like I said and I asked Priya to support me through my comms rebel journey because Priya was one of very few South Asian women who works in internal comms and I wanted somebody who would understand some of the challenges that I might face as being a South Asian woman working in internal comms, you know, as much as I love our industry, we're not very diverse in terms of our voices and the representation that we've got out there. And Priya was somebody that I really respected, who'd been there, done that. You know, she's got a very successful business in Canada. Uh, and I reached out to her and asked her. And when I was telling her the story about why I set up comms rebel and, and why I felt so low before I got to that stage of setting up my own business she said you know some of the challenges that we face is people with diverse backgrounds and you know people who are underrepresented in certain organizations is because we don't see leaders like ourselves at the top table and we struggle with imposter syndrome and this applies to anybody when you you know and this is why people say a lot more women struggle with imposter syndrome than men do even though it does impact men but you generally feel like a fraud when you don't see other people like you in the room So then you start questioning, do I actually belong in this space? How come I made it and nobody else looks like me, sounds like me, is in this space as well? I must be fraud. I must have just been very lucky to be in this room at this time. I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm just going to crack on because God forbid anybody finds out that I don't belong here. And that's, you know, the, the circumstances that are put upon us when we go into these rooms we do feel like we don't belong. And it's often because we don't see that leader, then we put the onus on us as an imposter, like to fix ourselves to an essence. And it is about making sure that we get the right support that we need to come out of this imposter syndrome phase that we're in. But it's also on on, on the organisation to be aware that there are people in the business who may not feel represented and may not feel they can belong. And that's where Priya and I started to have that chat. and And Priya said, you know, it'd be great if we could actually create something that would help our community of diverse voices to belong. Um, mm. And we decided to create a leader like me to build a community. And I've spoken about the power of community to you, Katie, at the beginning of this podcast, because it's such a special space to belong in. And if you feel safe, and psychological safety is a big thing, if you can feel safe, you can ask the questions, you can get the nourishment that you need from your community, then you're more likely to step into the adverse space sometimes and put your hand up for opportunities that you may feel like don't belong to you. And that's what a leader like me did. So we started off with women of colour who were looking to progress in their careers. It's a 12-week programme and the programme is based on the things that Priya and I wished we had when we were developing our careers and were progressing into our leadership journeys uh, at the time as well. And then once we did the 12-week programme, which is called Flight, we recognised that we needed somewhere where these women could gather and get that support. So we created a membership thing called The Nest. And, and The Nest is somewhere where they can feel very safe, get their support, get the acknowledgement that they need. A leader like me has been bigger than race. No, it's about all diverse areas of work. But we wanted to make sure that we started with a space that Priya and I were familiar with and had lived experiences in. And then going forward, our ambition is to grow the community for other protected characteristics like people with disabilities and LGBTQ plus A communities, men of colour, 
you know, it's such a wide range of diverse voices out there that deserve a space and we want to make sure we get community managers who support that and it is wider than comms you know we we had a chat whether we wanted to just focus on comms or what do we want to kind of open it up to any industry and we decided we want to be as inclusive as we possibly can so it's for anyone who feels underrepresented as a woman of color in the organization that they're working whether they're working comms whether they're working hr whether they're working it doesn't really matter but if you want that community that's what it's, it's there to do uh, and we hope that over time we can we can expand that group to to bigger and wider diverse groups as well. We'll make sure there are links in the in the show notes. You have done a lot of great work to sort of draw attention to issues of underrepresentation, especially in comms. And as you say, we're not the most diverse profession. I think that's fair to say. You recently, I, I noticed a tweet from you. You highlighted a conference that had. I mean, a vast array of speakers was probably 30, maybe more. All of them were white. And the conference organizers, I I had this sort of shudder of fear when I saw their social assets for Twitter and these sea of white faces. And I, I, because I thought, I can imagine how as conference organizers, they somehow got there because they were sort of thinking, what big brands can we have speakers represent? What major job titles are we going to go for? And they hadn't looked at the bigger picture. And you kind of called this out with a hashtag representation matters. And I just thought, oh my goodness me, you know, it's, it's so easy to fall short. I'm just wondering your advice, because we're all organizing events, whether they're internal ones, ones for our industry, ones for our network, what advice can you give us for making sure we don't fall into that desperate trap? Like you said, Katie, it's very easy to do that. And we've, you know, I've been guilty of it in the past when I've organized events, you know, myself being a diverse woman and a woman of color, I've gone into that kind of pattern of looking at the organization that the person comes from and, you know, and all that. But times have changed in the last couple of years and especially in the last year. And I feel like as leaders within internal comms and comms, we have a sense of responsibility to be that leading light, to be that change. Because if we don't do it, then how can we expect our organisation to do that? Which is why I do call out that kind of practice, right? Because it's really easy just to kind of turn a blind eye and move on and think, oh, well, you know, it is what it is. And just there isn't enough representation. What can we do? But as communicators, we've got a very privileged place in some of our organisations to change and support and give advice to our leaders in making them understand why inclusivity and belonging is so important in the work that we do. And I am a true believer in the power of language. And we can, we manage that, right, in the work, especially internal comms, we manage that kind of work and we can influence to an extent how our leaders might think. And yet when our own people and our own conversations and our own conferences are not representative of those voice, it does trigger me in terms of thinking, well, do I belong in this space or not then? Do people like me belong? You know, are, are you saying that our voice isn't enough to be part of this conversation? And that's not the only conference, you know, only last week or two weeks ago, I called out three more, exactly the same with the all right. white speaker list. And I just think if it, you know, and I've spoken to people offline about it and it's similar, you know, where do we look? What can we do? And we've gone, we've fallen into the trap of looking at organizations. And the simple thing for me is you've got to really check in with your bias, right? And you've got to be very conscious of it because it's really easy to be following the kind of I suppose, depending on what your purpose is for that conference, some people it's for monetary reasons or running it, you know, whatever. Some people don't want to make sure they get the names representing because they want to buy, sell tickets, obviously. And for others, they don't even think about it, right? They're just like, oh, they look good. I've heard them speak. They look good. They look great. But we do have to check in with our buyers and we do have to look at our community that we surround ourselves with. And it takes a bit of effort and it takes habit to do that. So my advice is always to these conference organisers is, you know, when you're drawing the plans up about what you want the conference to do, really have that conversation with the people and go, right, what are we looking for and what representation do we want at this conference? And for the people who are speaking at these events, it shouldn't be down to the speaker, I understand, but we should, we do have a sense of responsibility to ask that question of the conference organiser when they offer us a spot to say, what representation do you have speaking at this event and do you need any help? in finding further representation because 
I may not have anyone directly, but I can certainly get in touch with my community and see if there's anybody out there that is unheard of or may work at one of these kind of sexy organisations that you want speaking and let's just let's work together. And if you ask each of those 30 speakers to uh, you know nominate one or two people from a diverse, underrepresented background, wider than race, Katie, you know, we're talking about all areas of diversity, then imagine how, you know, just imagine the voices on that stage and the and the quality of conversation that takes place and experience that happens on, on that stage as well and how people could suddenly feel like they can belong in that space and have that conversation. And, it, you know, I don't enjoy, you know, calling these things out. I don't want anyone to ever think that they don't deserve that spot at that conference. I feel guilty about it because you have worked just as hard to get there to an extent. But you do have a sense of responsibility and we all need to use our privilege to some extent and ask that question. And it, including mm. myself in this, you know, so when I'm asked to speak at events, like sometimes I, if I'm busy, I might not go there, but I have to make a conscious effort to go back in touch with them and say, actually, can I just double check? Have you got representation at this conference apart from me? If it's a panel of two or three people, then I completely understand. You know, it's just about fairness. Are we representing the community that we're speaking to? And do we yes. have voices on there where people who are watching can relate and feel like they can one day speak on this stage as well if they wanted to makes perfect sense i mean i must thank you for your excel spreadsheet of names of people that are underrepresented i mean i took two from two appear in season five uh, mark webb and prathana thakur that i've already recorded those interviews there are I'm really, really delighted with the conversations. I wouldn't have had them had I not looked at your list. So thank you. I think the trouble is we are all, we have to recognise we're all in our little echo chambers and we need to get sort of slightly elbowed in the ribs to just walk outside of them occasionally and to meet some new folks. And I think the richness of the conversation then is so much greater. There's something new and there's something fresh and yeah, otherwise we're just kind of talking to ourselves the whole time, I think. <laughs> Would that be fair? Yeah, and it's about holding a hand out, right, and bringing people along with us. And the reason I say yes to so many opportunities now, and I never used to be like this, you know, two and a half years ago, the fear, the thought of speaking on podcasts like this or speaking on public stage put the, I was scared to death about it and never really said yes to anything. But I recognise at the time that, you know, people need to be able to feel like they can also belong in that career and that profession if they see voices that represent them. So it isn't about just once you made it, you close that door and don't help other people along with you. It's about keeping that door open and holding your hand out and bringing everybody along. Because the more we do that and the more conscious we are of, of doing this, then we can make change happen. Yeah, it'll be a bit, you know, it's slower and whatever, but at least change is happening. And that's the mm -hmm. most important part of what we're trying to do with a leader like me, Priya and I, and why we do the Diversity in Action Conference, right? The so Diversity in Action Conference is the reason is for mostly for our allies and our sponsors and people who just don't know what to do. Like, you know, can I say those words? Is it right for me to think this way? Is it am I discriminating against them if I'm putting myself, if I'm if I'm purposely seeking out people of colour to speak, you know, it really it, people really worry about the language and oh, the words to use completely. and the terminologies that people use, and it is worrying, you know. And you can't and you don't want to be called out. And cancel culture, which is a thing out there at the moment, is real and it does put the fear in people. So it stops people talking about it because you you think to yourself, well, if I say something and I get it wrong, then I'm going to look like an idiot and people are going to think I'm racist or I'm sexist or I'm whatever, you know, homophobic. So I'm not going to say anything. And in fact, I'm not just going to keep my head down, not say anything and pretend it's not happening to an extent because I don't want to be called out on, on, on mistakes. And what I say to those people who are struggling is it's fine to make the mistake because you are learning from making that mistake. Because if you don't make that mistake, then you don't learn. And majority of people are very forgiving if they can see that you're trying to learn and they can see that you're making the effort to understand that culture, that heritage and who they are and what they're about and, you know, giving them the space to listen and people can try. And I was, you know, I've learned a lot around non-binary language recently because that was a world that I wasn't familiar with. And I had an amazing person who has supported me in that because I was terrible, Katie, like 
I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't get my head around it. It takes a long time to get into the habit of what it means to be non-binary person and, and the kind of the the background behind it all and, and what everybody goes through and even the terminologies that we are sometimes guilty of using in some workplaces. We can, you know, we can we can go down the masculine route at times. And we're not very conscious of people who do come out as non-binary. And mm. that's the world that I've had to really learn about and understand a little bit more so I can be as inclusive as I can when I'm considering so asking people for pronouns now, right? So when I'm doing a conference, I will, you know, will ask because I got feedback that we don't ask for that. So it's just little baby steps about learning and accepting that you are going to make mistakes and it's okay to make these mistakes as long as you learn and you move on and you educate others around you at the same time. Yeah, it's such an interesting conversation. I listened to, and again, we'll put a link to this in the show notes. I listened to your Calm Edged Rebels podcast where you, Trudy and Jenny are talking about issues of diversity and inclusion. And Jenny said, sometimes she worries that having this conversation, particularly about race, is like walking across a, sort of a minefield. And you never know, you're going to step on something, say something, it's going to blow up in your face. And it, it shouldn't be like that. But what you're saying, I think, is it really does depend on the intention of the person that's getting it wrong. If they're trying hard, um, I said to you, I think, in a, a prep call for this, that you used the phrase, you used it in this conversation, protected characteristics. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's a useful phrase, um, <laughs> which I hadn't heard before. But it, it's it's presumably not offensive, but it tells you what you need to say. And I think it's picking up on the language and working out what to say in the right way, but knowing you're probably going to get it wrong because language moves all the time. It's a very fluid thing, isn't it? It is. But the intention there is always being right and and, and checking, I guess, as well. Just did I get this right? I can imagine with non-binary, it's particularly difficult because grammatically you are breaking a kind of school rule, aren't you? Because we yeah. generally say he said or she said, not yeah. they when we mean one person. So I suppose yeah. I can understand why you need to slightly rewire your brain, but presumably we'll all get better at it as we practice. It's habit, <laughs> yeah. It's just getting into that habit and understanding it and accepting that things will have to change for people to be more inclusive in it. And like you said, you know, and if you, like you said, Katie, if you don't know the answer, then ask the question. Like no one is going to begrudge you by asking the question or do the research out there. And there's so many amazing video, YouTube videos. You know, we are in a generation and in a, in a society now and in a world, I should say, where we've got so much access to our fingertips compared to 15 years ago, you know, and when I was at school where we had to go to an actual library <laughs> to yes. pull out a book and read a book and you know the the kind of a to z of whatever that's now you can just get on google really and and you know do your research and and make sure you're looking at you know proper research obviously and and feedback and doing your kind of due diligence on that but there's it's, it's to your fingertips nowadays and you shouldn't really have an excuse even with conference organizers like you could go on linkedin now and do a, a search on linkedin and quite quickly see where you can find the representation. 15 years ago when you were setting a conference up, yes, much harder. You really did have mm. to depend on other people's knowledge to give you the names that you needed to, to make sure you've got a very inclusive lineup. But now with LinkedIn and with Twitter and even Instagram and TikTok and all those other things that are out there, Clubhouse, you know, Clubhouse is a very, it's got its, you know, it's got lots of negative things to it at the moment and it, hopefully it'll iron itself out once it moves out of beta testing. But Clubhouse is another another space as well um, that needs a little bit of, you know, it's got a lot of inclusivity and diverse voices on there. So as long as you open up your mind to some of these different channels and different opportunities, then, you know, it is about just checking in with your own bias as well. I have got a slight philosophical question that I'd love to ask you about race, though, which is probably a little bit unfair. But I wonder what you see as kind of nirvana or success. I mean, there's such a, being anti-racist is such a hot topic at the moment. We've talked about cancel culture. I listened to your conversation on your podcast about quotas. And I think in general, you were kind of not really in favour of, of quotas, but obviously very much in favour of, say, recruitment practices that were colourblind. But I'm wondering what success looks like ultimately. And should we get to a place where, and this is just flying a kite, you tell me whether I've got this right, where your the colour of your skin or your heritage 
matters as much as you want it to. In other words, if you don't want it to define you at all, it doesn't. If it's very important to you and is a massively defining characteristic of who you are, fantastic. But you get to decide that. That's not something that others decide for you when they meet you for the first time or when they look at your name and think that doesn't look like a a British name for the sake of argument. Is that success? I'm not sure. I'd be interested in your views. It is a very interesting question. I was, I do think about what is what is success, and for me, you know, if I if I take it back to something like a leader like me, is it's not having the need for a leader like me, and that's the success. Okay. It's making sure you know we get to a point, Priya and I, that a leader like me just doesn't exist because there's no need for it, and there's no need to have that conversation. And you're hundred percent spot on. You know, we should be taken at face value in terms of how much we want to talk about our heritage and culture and religion and all that you know it should be up to us and not being defined by these boxes that organizations insist that we put into and I know I I 100% understand why they do this right because they want to make sure that they address in you know they're kind of segmenting the audience if you want to kind of call it that but it, it does make you feel like you're a number or you're just given you know and even as a woman in certain organizations you know when they do these kind of women leadership programs I always feel a little bit of me always kind of thinks are you trying to tell me then because I'm a woman I need extra support to be a leader (laughs) and the men don't like why are you making me do the hard work why aren't you getting the men to do the hard work and putting them through courses (laughs) why are you telling me to go on these women in leadership courses that's where I kind of got this kind of bugbear about that whole thing I'm like why are you telling us to go on these like course I think if it helps, and which is why, you know, the program for a leader like me is it's all about the kind of softer confidence side of skills, because you don't get taught that in those leadership programs, wherever you're working, if you've been put onto these programs, you, you, it's very kind of technical learning that you have to do. But I do think that why is the onus always on those individuals? And as soon as we can kind of move away from that, and everyone is is literally taken on their merit, and there's no bias, which is a, that is Nirvana, because bias for human beings, you know, God, can you imagine a world with no bias? It'd be a really weird kind of world to do in. But I think it's more important that we we're conscious as as conscious as we can be about our bias and making sure that we extend our reach far and wide to the community that we are part of and link in with different people and connect with different people and you know get in touch mm-hmm. and have a conversation with people who are completely different to you and just find out what they're about you know is we owe it to ourselves to enrich our lives with different different kind of backgrounds and heritage and cultures and races and religions and sexuality you know all that it, it does help us grow as individuals as well most definitely now I'm a massive fan of Brene Brown's work and so I can't resist asking you about your dare to lead training what was that like so that's really interesting. The Dare to Lead that I did was something that Brené Brown has created to kind of support people who want to dig a bit deeper into her book, Dare to Lead book. And I signed on to it. Normally, it's a face-to-face thing because of COVID, we had to do it online. So it's a you know it's a five-day program. But I loved it because it's all about understanding people and vulnerability and how you can become a better leader when you lean into that a little bit more because I do think if you ask someone to describe a leader it's 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 still we're still in that mindset that they have to have a certain characteristic and the reason I love Brené Brown is because she kind of calls it out you know she's done the research and that's what I love about her she's done the research she knows that those leaders who are more empathetic who show their vulnerability, who support their, their team in, in showing their vulnerability and embracing the shame that some people go through, are more, more successful than any other leader. And that Dare to Lead training was all about how can we empower others to show their vulnerability a little bit more and not feel ashamed about showing that vulnerability and and be conscious of the empathy that surrounds them. And there is a difference, you know, and she talks about in the programme, she talks about things like the difference between sympathy and empathy and why, right. you know, some people can fall into the trap of sympathy and not empathy. And it's just, it was fascinating. We, we really explored values and what values meant and how they're just not the word. I mean, for internal comms, we're all, you know, the internal comms folks listening, we're all, we've all been tasked with sticking a value onto our walls yes. and, goodness forbid if we've had to do an acronym over the the value as well to make it you know rhyme or whatever 
and it's it's so much wider than that values as you know and it's just not words you can put on a wall and expect people to kind of follow the deep-rooted deep-rooted values and that program was all about what they mean and how you can bring that out into the work that you do and if you get an opportunity anybody who's listening who wants to explore the data lead book a bit further then I do you know I do recommend that you check out that little work shop that she has pulled together so she she's not there like I wish she was oh my goodness it's my dream to be like trained by Brené Brown herself and one day I will get to Texas when all this is over and, and get the proper training face to face from her but it's an affiliate program so she comes on screen and she talks to you so you do feel like you're kind of talking to her in, in essence but it's run by uh, an amazing woman who kind of t- who, who's been affiliated by Brené so she got the stamp of approval from Brené directly to say that she can run this program on her behalf but yeah highly recommend it it's amazing and if you haven't seen the Brené Brown documentary on Netflix, then watch it. It will honestly, for me, it's one of the best. I've seen it about four or five times now because I just love the way she approaches some of those kind of challenging subjects. And my best quote from hers is, don't listen to the people in the cheap seats. And that has definitely got me through my 12 months of consultancy, (laughs) put it that way, Katie. (laughs) I love that. I love that quote. It's, yeah, lots of things I'm going through my head now because I saw that documentary again. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's very, very powerful, but there is a massive power in vulnerability. And I'm, I'm trying to work out why I think it's partly often because with vulnerability often comes a story and it has to be a true story. Otherwise you're not truly being vulnerable. I'm reminded when you and I spoke again, another thing where we were talking about imposter syndrome and you admitted to actually having a name for your imposter. Remind me what you call Sandy. 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 Yeah. Yeah. She pops along occasionally. Yeah. Sandy. I named her after the woman in Greece because I was obsessed with Olivia Newton-John um, when I was growing up and uh, she was complete opposite of me, a blonde haired, you know, woman growing up in the 80s uh, compared to me so I named her Sandy because I didn't dislike Olivia Newton-John's character but I couldn't relate to her and that's how no. I kind of think about my imposter so I named her Sandy from Greece yeah some people will think I'm absolutely lost the plot here a little bit but there is you know there is a method behind my kind of naming imposters and it does work for me but yeah yeah Sandy she does come on she, you know she's on a long haul holiday at the moment so I'm happy with that. <laughs> she's allowed to travel so she's gone off <laughs> I'm okay at the moment. She does occasionally come and visit me for, you know, one of those relatives you don't want staying over for too long. (laughs) Before we head to those quick fire questions, I'd love to ask you, because I see you as someone who is able to sort of survey the IC landscape. You know a lot of people, a lot of practitioners, um, you're involved. What's your prognosis for internal comms coming out? I don't think we can say post-COVID yet because it isn't quite that, unfortunately. What's your prognosis for the future of internal comms? How are you feeling about our profession at the moment? I think we have got a very good opportunity to maintain the momentum that we've gained over the last 12 months. And I would feel that majority of internal comms folks who have struggled to make traction in their business have certainly been taken seriously about the work that they do. And I would say we're now in a very good position and hopefully a good opportunity to demonstrate and keep up with that momentum with our leadership team and transition into that space of trusted advisorship. Gone are the days where we were curating, you know, going around with our pen and notepaper and and creating news stories. People can do that themselves now with the employee social networks that we've got, you know, and the police themselves to an extent. Um, You know, even things like putting presentations together, people are very tech savvy now. And the new generation leaders who are coming up, you know, they know how to use this kind of tech and they don't, you know, and I know those are the very tactical things that we did get involved in. So, which is why I encourage internal comms to become more leaders in their own right and become macro, you know, look at the macro level of organizations and understand exactly. We're very intuitive as internal comms, you know, you will you will recognize a pattern when you speak to internal communicators. We're very intuitive about the landscape that we work in. And we understand people and we understand culture very well. We have to take note of that and make sure that we're uplifting ourselves a little bit so we become that advisor to the leader so we can, you know, guide them in the right way and not fall into the trap of being the person who tidies up the presentation and formats it in the right thing or goes around writing stories. And 
those roles will exist, don't get me wrong, they will still be there, but this is a great time for us now to really demonstrate our value add in the business. And again, it links back into that whole measurement piece we spoke about at the start of the conversation. Yeah, and getting those outcomes really crystal clear before you set off. Yes, yes. uh, that's the end destination before you start on your journey. Always very helpful. So I'm going to turn to those quick fire questions, if I may, Advita. What would most surprise people about Avita Patel? Well, do you know what? This is really interesting. People will be surprised about this, but it does take me. I am naturally, you know, people will see I was naturally extroverted. Um, but it does take me a bit of energy to get to this stage. You know, it's not a na- I've had to train myself to become who I am today, to be as, as confident and speak openly with you like this. And I wasn't always like this. You know, I, I kind of held myself back uh, a lot of the times. But in the last few years, I've really had to push myself through it. And some people think it comes very naturally to me. And I think it would surprise people to think, actually, no, I do have to kind of take those five, 10 minutes to channel, you know, my inner strength a little bit and resilience and bring myself out there to speak. And I need that time to switch off completely and, and you know, like some introverts have to and, and, and reflect. And I think people just put you in a box, which is why I don't like those introvert, extrovert boxes, because I don't think you can belong one or the other. So I think people will be surprised to think that it does take me a bit of time and energy to get to this stage of confidence. Uh, to speak openly where I am now. I wasn't always like this. What do you wish you had known when you first started out in your comms career? I wish I knew that asking questions wasn't going to get me in trouble. Um, (laughs) Because (laughs) I started off my comms career thinking that I had to know the answer to everything. Uh, Because people around me didn't ask questions. They just took you know, they took the direction and and did what was asked of them. And I wish in my early days, I recognised that if I asked the questions, then I probably wouldn't have done some of the things that I did, that it wouldn't get me in trouble. And and I learnt that a bit too late, probably, you know, five, five, eight years into my career, I realised that asking questions is probably uh, is a good way of getting the answers to some of the things you need rather than making assumptions. And a great way just to kind of bond with people, because Generally, I think people quite like talking about their problems and their challenges, especially if you're a consultant. I mean, asking the right question, I think, is just crucial to kicking off that relationship, is it not? It's just so important. it is. And that's why I did coaching, because I never asked the questions. You know, I just took the orders. And when I did my coaching qualification, I realized asking questions is a really powerful way of kind of not only helping you progress and learn and, and experience things, but also helping them understand what you're trying to ask them so I wish I knew right at the start of my career you know when I was 18 years old that I, it's okay to ask questions you're not going to get in trouble for it <laughs> and there's always that leading question and I'm sure you're guilty of it I'm certainly guilty of it where you don't want to suggest that maybe the thinking's wrong so you ask a question that hints at the fact that the thinking might need to change if that makes sense yes yeah <laughs> There's a gentle way of saying, I think you might need to think about that again. Um, (laughs) What book or website report, it really doesn't matter, should all comms professionals read? Uh, Obviously, I'm going to say anything by Brené Brown, like Power of Vulnerability, Dare to Lead. If you haven't read anything by Brené, read it. It'll really help your communications career because it, it helps you really dig deep into how leaders think and how leaders should think to an extent as well. And it just gives you that confidence about how to approach difficult conversations. You know, she talks about rumbling conversations, for example, in Dare to Lead. Uh, So if you haven't read anything about Brené, highly recommend it. And the other report is the Edelman Trust Barometer Report and the Gatehouse Report that comes out every year as well. For comms folks, it's very important that we kind of keep on top of those trends. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll put links again. I think the Trust Barometer came out in January and State of the Sector is just out this week as we're recording it. So, yeah, links in the show notes. So here's a tricky one. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you could not fail? Oh, this is really interesting because I am very much about if it's 51% okay, let's just go for it. You know, and Priya always says progress, not perfection. 
And yes. I've kind of followed that state of mind as well. So I, I don't fear failing. So I will try it. And if I fail, I fail. But if I was talking personally, then I would love to invest. A, a part of, do you know what? What I should have said, what people don't know about me is that I'm a property investor. Like not oh, many people know. know no, not, not many people know that actually. So that would have been a good one for that. But yeah, so I invest in property. Property developer. It's something that my my mum my and dad got me into when I was 19, actually. Uh, I wasn't allowed to spend uh, all my hard-earned savings on nightclubs and drink uh, to invest it in a property. But since then, I've been a property investor. So if I knew I couldn't fail, I would invest in more uh, property and do all that kind of stuff. But the, the market's not as great as we'd like it to be at the moment. But yeah, so not comms related, but my other life, which is property development. But when it comes to comms, I'm like, do you know what, 51%, let's go for it. If it fails, I'll learn, move on and do it better next time. And that's the, the life yeah. I like try and lead as possible as much as I can anyway yeah not to see failure as the opposite of success but potentially one step closer to it (laughs) (laughs) so this is borrowed from the Tim Ferriss show at the end we give you a billboard to put a message on for millions to see what are you going to put on that billboard I want to share my ultimate favorite quote that I've got it on a pen bash that's how much I love it if you were everyone's cup of tea you'd be a mug (laughs) that is absolutely brilliant my favorite quote that I've actually developed into a pin badge that people can have because I love it so much and I think we worry so much about what other people think about us that we it does stop us progressing and I think if you're everyone's cup of tea then you definitely will be a mug so don't you know there will be people who just don't like you and this is coming from a chronic people pleaser by the way like I am I love to please people and I want people to like me. And it's taken me a long time <laughs> to move out of that transition and think, do you know what? There will be people out there who won't like you and that's okay. But as long as they respect you for what you are doing. And that's all I yes. can ask for. Yes. Advita, it's been an absolute privilege to interview you. I just want to say as we end, thank you so much for the service that you do our profession. We couldn't manage without you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Katie, and thank you for letting me share my story. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. If you did enjoy the show, I would be really grateful if you could rate it on Apple Podcasts, because I'm told that's the very best way of making us more discoverable for other IC folk out there. And please do reach out to me on social media, You'll find me, Katie McCauley, on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I love hearing from you and I do try to respond to every single piece of feedback we receive. To find out more about the books and the other resources that Advita and I spoke about, head over to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk forward slash podcasts. You'll find the show notes there, plus links to all our other episodes. And while you're on our site, you might like to sign up for AB Thinks. That's our monthly newsletter. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of homes. Still coming up on season five, we have the behavioral science guy, William Leach, who is the author of Marketing to Mind States. We're going to explore the world of behavioral science and how we can apply its thinking and theories to the world of internal comms. So you may want to hit that subscribe button today. All that remains is to say thank you for being here. And until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts.